2: The state of monarchy is the most supreme thing upon earth, for kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon God's throne, but even by God himself they are called gods. King James I of England Queen. Vassa was deposed by his uncle Charles in 1599, and as he fled Sweden to hopefully resume the war from a secure base in Poland, Henry IV of France was securing his country after finally making peace with the Spanish. Hugh O'Neill was terrorising the English across Ireland, the Ottomans were carving up the Balkans for themselves, and across the empires of Europe, war was being waged at huge financial cost. The war taking place in Scandinavia, and indeed the major actors that took part in it, Sweden, Poland, Russia, Denmark, and to an extent the Holy Roman Empire, are often overlooked by history in favour of states elsewhere, or for their actions in other parts of Europe at the same time. But it is important to understand the events taking place in North and East Central Europe, just like it is important to understand the conditions of Europe everywhere else. I will allow Peter H. Wilson, in his book we'll be drawing on heavily for the duration of this special, to properly introduce the major players for the next significant portion of this episode, primarily in the Baltic and Scandinavia. Wilson's book is entitled Europe's Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War, and the extract reads as follows. Quote, Scandinavian involvement in the Thirty Years' War linked Central European problems with a struggle for Baltic predominance. Like Spanish and French involvement, Swedish and Danish participation helped prolong and widen the conflict, rather than contribute directly to its causes. Scandinavian concerns remained distinct, with the Baltic struggle beginning well before the Central European strife and rumbling on beyond the peace of Westphalia. However, unlike the Western powers, Denmark and Sweden were more closely involved with the constitutional issues at the heart of the empire's problems. In Denmark's case, this was because its king was already an imperial estate holder and was deeply involved in the religious policies of northern Germany. Sweden was relatively distant at this stage and, indeed, was regarded by most Germans as barely part of the civilized world. End quote. It was from the province of Uppland that the Vasa noble family emerged to lead the movement for liberation against the Danes in 1523. Before that time, Queen Margaret I of Denmark had successfully unified the kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden together to form what is known as the Kalmar Union in 1397. Initially, the Kalmar Union had been established to counterbalance the commercial monopoly of the Hanseatic League, a cooperation of cities and states that stretched from Belgium up through the less developed Eastern Baltic Sea and into Russia itself. The Hansa, as it became known, became highly influential since its inception in the early 12th century, and soon expanded all over Northern Europe, to the extent that Henry II of England allowed it to trade with London in a toll-free arrangement in 1157. The clout of the League, both on a military and financial level, had expanded by 1370 so much that it was actively waging war against Denmark, and a successful conclusion of the war in the Peace of Stralsund enabled the Hanseatic League to claim some serious privileges over its Baltic neighbours. As per the treaty, the League gained the right to claim 15% of all Danish trade coming through the Sound. It upheld its right to interact with any Swedish or further Baltic state it wished. It was granted complete free trade privileges in the Baltic Sea, and, most incredibly, the League gained the power to veto candidates for the Danish throne. Such power would never be at the fingertips of the League again, though, as the Scandinavian states, which had long since chafed under the League's regulations and tolls, endeavoured to find a better deal collectively. Thus we come to the Union of Kalmar, created almost for the sole purpose of combating the Hanseatic League. Indeed, the agreement was purely a personal one. Only the foreign policy of the three states would remain unified. Each would still enjoy its own government, Led by councils of its various nobles. This is explained by Peter H. Wilson. Quote, this has been a purely personal union since Denmark, Sweden, and Norway retained their own royal councils composed of leading nobles to safeguard their laws and interests. Denmark was also more closely linked to imperial politics, being governed since 1448 by a branch of the Oldenburg dynasty whose court spoke German. End quote. The Kalmar Union left deep divisions in Scandinavia, though, as Sweden's nobles resented the Danes to the extent that in 1470 a successful rebellion expelled the Kalmar Union reps and installed a strongly anti-Danish party for the next five decades. In 1520, though, Christian II of Denmark embarked on a bloody campaign of reprisal, and in the Stockholm bloodbath of that year, over 80 noble men and women were executed in that city and tensions were at such a point that the Kalmar Union from that moment on became impossible. Christian II, perhaps recognising his overstepping despite his technical military success, abdicated his throne under pressure from the Pope, and Sweden's remaining noble families, among them the Vasa, sought to fill the power vacuum now present in Sweden, a country which now had very little love for Denmark, or the Kalmar Union as a whole. Thus, while the next line of Danish kings, Frederick II and Christian III, focused on restructuring Denmark's religious policies in light of the Reformation, leading it inevitably into a brief period of civil war, the first independent line of Swedish kings since the Kalmar Union tried to establish their rule. It was not an easy task. Coming from the noble house of Vasa in Upland, the Swedish royal family feuded intensely with Denmark over the course of the 16th century. Peter Wilson explains this course. Quote, the struggle for dominance in the Baltic followed the collapse of the Kalmar Union in 1520-23, to when the Swedish nobility rejected the Danish king and chose their own monarch. The two fragments of the former union, Denmark, Norway and Sweden Finland, quarrelled over their bilateral relations while fighting internally over their forms of government. Both kings claimed the united legacy of the three crowns of Sweden, Denmark and Norway, and Denmark contested Sweden's secession from the Union, harboring hopes of subordinating it again, or at least maintaining its own position as the dominant Baltic power." Quote. As Sweden attempted to consolidate its position by expanding its bases in Finland and in its northern fringes, the Danes focused on making money. A map of Northern Europe explains how Denmark managed to accumulate such vast resources of wealth in order to effectively conduct any trade with the Baltic, or with North Germany, one had to pass through what was referred to as the sound. The best way to understand the financial efficiency of the sound is to simply do this. Get your two hands, stick one finger out on each, then draw both hands closer together, so that the two fingers you have sticking out are parallel to one another. That space in between your two fingers, that was the sound, and that explains why Denmark, having found itself in such a geographically sound position, was able to make so much money. The Danish king enjoyed this steady source of income, because it flowed directly into his pockets. He could also acquire more international influence for himself, because all he had to do was promise his friends in other states better toll rates on the sound in order to do his bidding. Needless to say, he also had many enemies because of this control. Geoffrey Parker in his book Europe in Crisis 1598 to 1648 explains this Danish monopoly and relative strength in comparison to Sweden. Quote, "Although Sweden broke away from Danish suzerainty in 1523, Denmark remained far stronger. Its kings ruled not only the Jutland peninsula and almost all islands in the Baltic, but also Greenland, Iceland, the Faroes, Norway and the province of Bohuslän, Skane, Halland and Blekinge." On the eastern shore of the Sound. They also held the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein. These extensive territories, although far-flung and sparsely populated, with perhaps 1.5 million subjects in all by 1600, encouraged the Danish kings to seek further claims. Their German duchies, which made them princes of the Holy Roman Empire, led them to seek new territories in the south, while their Atlantic outposts encouraged attempts to control all shipping and fishing in the northern seas. Above all, their control of territory on both sides of the Sound, and so of all access to the Baltic by sea, gave rise to heavy tolls on vessels passing through. All of this made many enemies. End quote. Peter Wilson then explains another side effect of the Danish control of the Sound, with an interesting parallel to Spain's exploitation of its silver mines in its overseas possessions. Quote, Rather like Spain's silver, Denmark's tolls obscured underlying economic and physical weaknesses that were only exposed once the country became involved in the Thirty Years' War. Though it collected the tolls, it did not control the trade. Over half the ships that passed through the Sound were Dutch, with the remainder mainly English and German. Denmark's trading participation was restricted to producing some of the grain and timber for transport, as well as Norwegian deep sea fishing. The Danish monarchy thus remained what is termed a domain state, heavily reliant on income derived from the crown lands that accounted for 67% of royal revenue in 1608. The domain economy relied on barter, with the monarchy extracting produce directly from its tenants in lieu of rent. A large part was consumed directly by the royal court, or transferred as payment to officials who were only just beginning to receive salaries in coin. The remainder was sold on the market for cash. Inevitably, military spending dominated the Danish budget. With such large cash reserves, the Danish did have an impressive first strike capacity, which meant that the Danish could start and hopefully strike a decisive blow within its wars very quickly. But the successes that resulted from these strategies again disguised the Danes' major weaknesses. Its army, for example, was based almost entirely out of foreign, mainly German, mercenaries. In its war against Sweden in 1563, 24,000 of its 28,000 troops sent against Sweden were German mercs. When King Christian IV ascended to the Danish throne, he switched the country's course. So that after 1596, Danish strategy becomes notably more focused on defence, while still possessing the ability to quickly mobilise a strike force. While also improving and building new fortifications, the most notable being Oslo which would in time become Norway's capital, Christian IV modernised the army, implementing a series of reforms between 1599 and 1602 that enabled a large militia force to exist permanently in Denmark. This was an interesting step in a new direction for Denmark. Although the use of offensive arms still was in the reach of the Danish monarchy, the new focus on defence and the moving on from the standing army policies of the previous years suggests that the Danes may have been paying rather close attention to the Dutch, and there war with the Spanish that had seen fortress siege after fortress siege. The seeds had already been sown for Scandinavian conflict, because just as the Danes had expanded financially, the Swedes had focused their efforts on improving the international standing of their country by marital means. The Danes continued to watch all methods of Swedish expansion with a growing sense of unease, and the wars started by Denmark in 1563 were seen by the monarchy, as pre-emptive, because the Danes were starting to see more and more of the country they had once claimed to rule, and as Geoffrey Parker explains, they did not like what they saw. Quote, Although in the late 16th century joint frontier meetings between Swedish and Danish negotiators settled most disputes between the rival kingdoms, they failed to resolve two problems. The first arose from Sweden's campaigns in Livonia after 1600, which involved the blockade of the port of Riga. Denmark owned the island of Osel near Riga, so that foreign ships trying to run the Swedish blockade often took refuge there, leading to frequent violations of Danish territorial waters by their Swedish pursuers. The other area of conflict lay along the Arctic fringe of Scandinavia, where colonists and administrators from Denmark, which also ruled Norway, competed with an increasing Swedish presence. Between 1606 and 1609 in particular, new Swedish settlements and churches sprang up in the far north. As the government dispatched civil servants and pastors and improved communications, tensions mounted." Both Sweden and Denmark were heavily involved in Russia too. Christian IV seemed aggravated enough by Sweden's moves to consider war against his Scandinavian neighbour inevitable and, if some records are to be believed, desirable. Charles IX of Sweden had seen off his nephew Sigismund, as we saw in the last episode, but he now had to contend with a belligerent Denmark while also seeking to maintain his monarchy at home. Peter Wilson explained Sweden's rise from the ashes as being far from inevitable once the Union of Kalmar ceased in 1523. The growth of Danish influence in northern Germany was offset by that of its great rival at the opposite end of the Baltic. Sweden's rise as a European great power is one of the most remarkable stories of 17th-century international relations. Though the material basis of Swedish imperialism lay earlier in the conquest of the Livonian and Estonian ports, it was only Gustavus Adolphus's victories in Germany in 1630-32 that brought international recognition of the country's new status." For Sweden, the intermarrying of the Jagellonian heir into the Vasa dynasty was incredibly significant. Not only was it quite scandalous that the last heir of the near extinct and well-known Jagellonian dynasty should marry into the outcast of Europe in Sweden and its infant Vasa monarchy, but it ensured that the interests of Poland and Sweden and the rivalries of both would hence overlap. On the other hand, it also represented a significant first step into the European continent for a Sweden that was not a century removed from its Scandinavian isolationism. King John of Sweden had wanted his son Sigismund to rule both countries, and for a while this seemed possible, when in 1587 the Polish council accepted the Swedish prince as King Sigismund III. Hoping to gain further clout with the Poles, John began to lean towards Catholicism in his domestic affairs in Sweden, and this brought him into frequent conflict with his brother Charles. When John died in 1592, Sigismund was in Poland maintaining his home away from home, and Charles saw his opportunity to strike. Sigismund had hoped to pacify the ambitions of his uncle by granting Sweden more autonomy under his guidance and when Charles declared that Sweden was a Lutheran country in 1593, the Catholic Sigismund reluctantly accepted this. Religious, political, and regional factors split what should have been a sole court into two parts, and when Sigismund returned with a small Polish army to Sweden in 1599, he was expelled by Charles's leadership of Swedish forces against him. Even while Denmark threatened it in the West, Sweden then became heavily invested in war against the Poles. Peter Wilson explains that, although Charles was crowned king in 1604, quote, this did not end the wider war, and the Poles evicted the Swedes from Livonia after the Battle of Kirkholm in 1605, while the conflict dragged on to 1611. The Vasa dynasty was permanently split into hostile Catholic Polish and Lutheran Swedish branches, entrenching enmity between the two countries well into the 18th century. End quote. Wilson continues on the war's effects. Quote, the Civil War left Sweden isolated. Protestant rulers continued to look to Denmark for leadership, regarding Charles IX as a usurper, despite his Lutheran credentials. Moreover, Charles overreached himself in an attempt to seize control of trade in the Eastern Baltic. The conquest of Estonia and its port of Narva in 1581 closed Muscovy's access to the Baltic and forced it to redirect trade through the Arctic founding the port of Archangel in 1583. Charles now tried to intercept this trade too by claiming Lapland and the North Norwegian coast. These regions were largely uninhabited but essential if Sweden was going to levy tolls on trade through the White Sea. The attempt precipitated the Second Northern War in 1611. This essentially repeated the first. Denmark again demonstrated military superiority by taking Alvesburg and other strategic ports but its margin of victory was less convincing, and it ended the war with the Peace of Narod in 1613. Sweden renounced its claim to northern Norway, and to the island of Ossol near Riga, that had previously caused such tension between the two powers, and again it ransomed Augsburg, and paid a war indemnity on one million Reichsdahlers in 1616-1619. to 1619. End quote. Sweden's heart and ability to fight in the war was torn from its bosom in 1611 with the death of Charles IX, and the onset of the regency of Gustav Adolf of Vasa, who was only 17 and could not rule in his own right till the age of 24. As the Swedish aristocracy looked to force concessions out of the young king by threatening to back sigismund, still living it up in Poland, Gustav came to rely heavily on the policies of one notable nobleman, Axel Oxenstierna who I'll call Ax Ox from now on, since it sounds cool. Ax Ox's drafting and proposal of a new charter to the Swedish council in 1611 ensured the stability of Sweden by establishing a number of principles and promises the young king would have to uphold. Gustav approved the charter in full, and upon pacifying his nobility, moved to save face and improve his notoriety in his country after the image-tarnishing loss to Denmark. Although Sweden under Charles hadn't fared well against Denmark, it was the war against its more personal rival in Poland that demonstrated not just the breadth of Scandinavian interests, but also the extent to which Russia had become a pawn in Polish affairs. By 1610, and after years of turmoil, Tsar I Shisiskiai had been symbolically defeated, captured by Polish forces, and brought back to Warsaw to bow at Sigismund's feet. Sigismund, having defeated the Muscovite state that was in utter chaos, now procrastinated as he decided on his next course of action for Russia. At 15 years old, his son Vladislav was too young to rule Russia in his own right, and Sigismund himself desired to jointly rule the two states anyway. Essentially, Sigismund was waging full-scale war in Russia. He was besieging Smolensk, and actively maintained a Polish garrison in Moscow but he was losing the battle for the hearts and minds of the Russians. And although the Swedes should have been focusing on the Danes in their war, they were still able to spare troops for a Russian campaign. Indeed, Swedish forces occupied all of the Baltic provinces, and Charles IX of Sweden, before his death, even proposed his second son Charles Philip as candidate to be Tsar. The so-called national movement within Russia was gaining ground though. They did not approve of either candidate for the Russian throne, a good thing too, since no matter the choice, the country would merely have become a pawn in the Polish-Swedish rivalry had either foreign candidate become Tsar, or had King Sigismund of Poland continued as Tsar himself. Instead, the national movement settled on the obscure grand-nephew of Ivan the Terrible, Michael Romanov. In March 1613, the National Assembly in Russia elected Michael as Tsar, officially ending what had been two decades of dynastic power struggles. However, just because Russia finally appeared domestically secure did not mean the external threats to its existence had ended, as Geoffrey Parker explains. In 1614, all the Cossacks accepted Michael's authority, which restored a semblance of order in the south. The restoration of peace in the north and west, where bandit gangs operated right up to the gates of Moscow with impunity, depended on reaching a settlement with Sweden and Poland, but neither antagonist seemed ready to negotiate. Instead, in 1615, another Swedish army invaded Russia and laid siege to Pskov. Talks only began when it failed to capture the town. Eventually, by the Peace of Stralbovo, in March 1617, Sweden recognised Michael as Tsar and returned Novgorod in return for a cash indemnity and sovereignty over Kexholm and Ingria, which linked together its provinces from Estonia and Finland. This cut Russia off from the Baltic, Archangel on the White Sea became the Empire's only seaport, and the trails leading it to Moscow became its most important thoroughfare." For Russia to make peace with Poland, though, Sigismund was determined to make Muscovy work a lot harder. After the Polish died virtually abandoned the Polish garrison in Moscow, following the capture of Smolensk in 1611, the Polish survivors from that disaster filtered back to Poland and caused serious damage in their pillage of the countryside. When the Polish Diet voted taxes to pay and demobilize these troops, who probably didn't appreciate their homeland so much anymore after they had been abandoned by it, Sigismund used this money to invade Russia again. His son commanded the forces, but this time, when they tried to storm Moscow in October 1618, his forces were beaten back by a larger population, now 100,000, and better defences now consisting of four concentric rings of fortifications. In January 1619, though, just as things were unravelling in Germany, the two sides signed the truce of Dolino, to last until 1633. Poland appeared absolutely triumphant with the peace terms. Sigismund was able to hang on to Smolensk, he also didn't have to recognise Michael's claim as Tsar, Sigismund's son Vladislav was referred to as Tsar of Russia in the many dispatches and for the duration of Sigismund's reign. Michael at least managed to arrange a prisoner exchange, with the result that his father, Philaret, second son of Ivan, could now return home, and advised his very vengeful son on the best course of action. With the Russian focus now securely turned inward, and with the war between the Danes and Swedes at an end, one could be forgiven for thinking that a new era of peace was set to enter Europe in 1618 as Geoffrey Parker explains, In 1619, all the Baltic states enjoyed peace for the first time in two decades. Russia and Sweden had both survived serious threats to their existence. Denmark, and even more Poland, had gained much from their expansionist designs. The Dutch, whose interests in the Baltic grew with the number of their ships sailing through the mother trade in the Sound, had shown by their mediation of the Peace of Nared in 1613 and by their loans to Sweden, that they wished a balance of power to exist in the region, and had the strength to impose it. They also drew benefit from the peace, because Sweden opened its copper mines to Dutch entrepreneurs as collateral for its loans. Yet the peace of the Baltic was about to be shattered by events further south, which even the Dutch could not control." The Dutch had intervened heavily in the Baltic during this period, So much so, that one could be forgiven for wondering just how many people lived in the Dutch Republic that it was able to have its fingers in so many pies. Overseas in the East Indies and the Caribbean, in Europe against the Spanish, directly south in the other Netherlands, and in negotiations with England and France. But the status quo would change in 1610, since for the first time in over 40 years, a peace of sorts was arranged between the Dutch and their eternal enemies in the Spanish. The Habsburgs were a truly European institution by 1600. In the Holy Roman Empire itself, with the brothers Rudolf, Matthias and Albert all acquiring their equal share of responsibility close relatives of the Spanish arm of the Habsburgs ruled over Spain and Portugal, and frequently remarried backwards into the Habsburg extended family in order to secure a further alliance. Case in point, the South Netherlands When Albert, brother of Matthias and Rudolf, went to the Netherlands to assume the governorship of those lands, he was pledged to be married to Philip II's favourite daughter Isabella, once it became clear that Rudolf would not marry her. The arrangement established between the two, and the idea behind creating the so-called State of the Archdukes, based out of what would become mostly Belgium, is explained by Peter Wilson. The couple would jointly rule as the Archdukes from Brussels. The hope was that an autonomous Netherlands would prove more acceptable to the Dutch, who might be induced to abandon the struggle with Spain and accept union with Brussels instead. This was undoubtedly too little too late coming a full decade after the foundation of the Dutch Republic, while the entire project was compromised by the continued presence of the army of Flanders in the south, still reporting directly to Madrid. Yet the plans should not be dismissed too hastily. Albert and Isabella were determined to assert their autonomy, and matters might have turned out differently had they had a son. End quote. Indeed, the Archduke's favourite method of demonstrating their autonomy was to attempt to intervene and mediate in the affairs of other states. Although technically a satellite state of Spain, the Archdukes played a large part in fostering the peace agreement between the English and Spanish in 1604. In time, they would also ensure that a peace came about between Spain and its rebellious provinces, their neighbours, to the north. From the beginning, it appears as though the Archdukes were keen to pursue a policy of peace with the Dutch. Though, as Geoffrey Parker explains, this was often difficult. Quote, After the transfer of power, the Archdukes continued to pursue policies that were designed to bring peace to the Netherlands, regardless of Spain's overall strategic goals. At first, the belligerents of their enemies thwarted them. In 1600, Mars of Nassau military leader of the Dutch Republic, invaded the province of Flanders and laid siege to Newport. The Archdukes could not ignore this threat, and Albert himself commanded the forces that met the Dutch in battle on the sand dunes near Newport. Although thanks to their superior fire discipline, the Dutch inflicted heavy casualties and held the field, they too suffered heavy losses and had to withdraw, leaving Newport in Spanish hands the Archdukes now concentrated on securing their borders. In 1600 they made it clear that they would remain neutral should Spain declare war on France over Saluzzo, and three years later upon hearing of the death of Elizabeth, they immediately sent an envoy to congratulate James the on his succession, and they set free all English prisoners. James reciprocated these specific gestures by refusing to renew the Letters of Mark that legalized attacks by English pirates on Habsburg shipping. And in July 1603, he declared a general suspension of hostilities between Spain and England. Habsburg negotiators soon arrived in England and put an end to the costly 19 year conflict by the Treaty of London in August 1604. End quote. The war in the Netherlands did continue, though, revolving around sieges of towns and fortified strongholds. But by 1604, financial exhaustion on both sides prevented much action, with neither side able to maintain offensive and defensive armies in the field at the same time. The Dutch responded quickly to these events by relying more heavily on the cheaper militia force and simply using smaller armies. But the Spanish didn't do this, and so large Spanish forces ended up in mutiny due to lack of pay. It took the superhuman efforts of one Ambrosio Spagnola, affectionately named Ambrosio by his Spanish peers, which really tipped the balance frightfully in Spain's favour during the next few years. Hailing from Genoa, Ambrosio proved himself by succeeding in the siege of Ostend in 1602, and the Archdukes named him their commander-in-chief, a call usually made by Madrid, again demonstrating the Archduke's determination to act independently and sent him to Madrid to receive the Spanish crown's blessing. Though Philip III resented this usurpation of his rights as king, he relented when Ambrosio threatened to withdraw his support for the campaign. Philip sent him on his way with his new title, and Ambrosio set about proving his importance. During the campaign year of 1605 he created two armies, one to pin down the Dutch in Flanders, the other to strike a lightning campaign in the northeast. Ambrosio made such rapid gains that the Dutch panicked and with great expense created a new line of fortifications called the Issel Line that stretched for over 250 kilometers. The following year Ambrosio could not force his way through due to lack of funds from Spain, but he did maintain his year's previous successes and beat back Dutch counter-attacks on Rheinberg. Unable to make any headway against Ambrosio, and seeing their financial enterprises cracking under the pressure of almost four decades of war, the Dutch situation began to seem desperate, as Geoffrey Parker explains. Quote, In the words of Johann von Alden Barnvelt, an experienced Dutch statesman, the war now brought the Republic little glory and much expense. On the one hand, between 1598 and 1606, the Republic lost more territory than it gained. Even though the size of its army doubled, spending on fortifications quintupled, and unpopular tax had to be levied to pay for it all. On the other hand, Spain's embargo of Dutch commerce with the peninsula largely eliminated a profitable source of trade. At the same time, energetic moves against Dutch traders in the Caribbean temporarily ended another lucrative commerce, which had occupied over a 100 vessels every year. End quote perhaps the only source of hope came from the Dutch endeavours in the East India Company, which the Dutch had pioneered along with the Danish and English. Although stock with the companies was a well-sought commodity, profits remained erratic and capital was badly required. Olden Barnvelt, who will encounter heavily later during the Republic's shaky truce years, noted to a colleague, We dare not raise taxes in the towns and villages any higher for fear of disturbances. More than half the inhabitants of the towns and countryside are inclined to peace, and, should there be any further reverses, the rest will not remain firm. Especially since the provinces have been stripped of all businesses, prosperity, and most of their navigation by the peace treaties with France and England. Though not one for mincing his words as a general rule, Olden Barnveld's cynical views were based on hard evidence. He warned later that year that the Republic's position was no longer tenable, when further reverses did occur as he feared, and suggested urgent appeals to France or England for aid, or else an accommodation would have to be sought with Spain. The States-General thus suggested a three-tier response. First, a fleet would be sent out under the command of Jacob von Heemskerk to attack Spanish shipping. The Dutch themselves would keep all forces on a defensive footing without a field army, and they would send a request to the Archdukes that they wished to talk to their reps about ending the war ASAP. As Geoffrey Parker explains though, both the Archdukes and the Spanish were making pacific moves of their own towards the Dutch at this very moment. Quote, By a strange coincidence, Philip III's advisors had already taken a parallel decision. Also lacking funds for another offensive, they resolved that the 1607 campaign would be purely defensive. They did not communicate their decision to Brussels, however, just as the Archdukes at first did not inform Madrid that they had sent an envoy to see whether the rebels would open talks. Nor did the Archdukes consult Madrid before they made a significant unilateral promise to the Dutch. End quote. This significant unilateral promise, as Parker calls it, is indeed highly symbolic. For the first time, the Archdukes would recognise the Dutch Republic as a sovereign state and not just as rebellious provinces. They stated, Holding nothing dearer than to see the Netherlands and their inhabitants freed from the miseries of war, we hereby declare that we are willing to negotiate with the States-General of the United Netherlands as, and considering them as, free lands, provinces, and states, over which Our Highness makes no claim, whether in the context of a permanent peace, a truce, or an armistice for twelve, fifteen, or twenty years. In return for some vague promises then, the Dutch got this written guarantee which, although certainly designed to pander to their sense of identity, did finally grant them a level of recognition that Spain had refused to consider for the past four decades. In April 1607, a ceasefire was negotiated between the Spanish and Dutch. In return for this promise, arbitrated by the Archdukes, the Dutch had to promise to evacuate the recent conquests in the East Indies, although only Olden Barnveld appeared willing to undertake this pledge and it appeared clear that the truce, or whatever it was, would be confined merely to Europe, as Peter Wilson explains. Quote, they refused to disband the East India Company that was already stealing markets from the Portuguese, and the final terms effectively restricted the truce to Europe. Philip III and Lerma overruled objectives to the truce, arguing that the continuing of the war risked inflicting even greater damage, and agreed the 12 years' truce with the Dutch... On the 9th of April 1609. End quote. The Duke of Lerma, Philip III's closest advisor, had cooperated with the Archdukes to ensure that peace came to the Netherlands too, and just like that, the Spanish Dutch War, or the Eighty Years' War which had begun in 1568, was now on a break. As Geoffrey Parker explains, though, Europe perhaps was not ready to see such an accord take place. Quote, The sudden agreement, after 35 years of war, took the rest of Europe by surprise. The French and English governments had known about the talks, but assumed that the Dutch would consult them before making any decision. The Dutch leaders made haste to remind their former allies that they could only afford to continue fighting in return for substantial subsidies. News of the ceasefire reached Spain, five days after Heemskerk's fleet destroyed a Spanish squadron off Gibraltar. A powerful reminder that the armistice said nothing about the war at sea, but few saw an alternative. War with Venice seemed imminent, while the Spanish Treasury owed over twenty two million ducats, almost five million pounds, in short term loans, and had pledged all revenues for four years in advance. In November 1607, Philip III issued a decree of bankruptcy, which forcibly converted his loans into non redeemable consolidated stock with the result that no bankers would lend him more money." It wasn't just the Spanish themselves who were ready for peace, though. It may not surprise you to learn that the entire area around the Netherlands, both North and South, had been thoroughly ravaged by decades of war. It must have seemed like ancient memory to the Dutch when looking for the reasons why they originally rebelled in the first place. So many Dutch would have been born into the state of war with Spain. So many Dutch would have known only war with Spain while others would have made the best of it abroad, doing what the Dutch have always done, make money. But the war had taken its toll. An English traveller moving through the Archduke's territories down south noted the scene. As soon as I entered into the Archduke's territory, I beheld a province distressed by war, the people heartless and rather repining against their governors than vengeful against their enemies. The bravery of the gentry which was left and the industry of the merchant quite decayed. The husbandman, laboring only to live, without desire to be rich to another's use. The towns ruinous, and to conclude, the people here growing poor with less taxes than they flourish with on the state side. 100,000 people had in fact gradually abandoned the South Netherlands between 1567 and 1609, spreading their wealth and skills across Germany, but primarily in the north, where the majority of them moved. This influx of people into the Dutch Republic enabled it to enter into its golden age, into the early 17th century. Geoffrey Parker explains the aftermath of this truce. Quote, France and England immediately recognised the Dutch envoys in their respective capitals, and their own representatives in The Hague, as full ambassadors, thereby according the Republic the status of a sovereign state. The Dutch, for their part, reduced their army and placed the majority of their remaining troops in in a cordon of heavily fortified garrison towns around the periphery of the state, with regular wages paid by the prosperous central provinces, trade with the Hispanic world resumed. And although Olden Barnvelt vetoed plans for a West India Company to coordinate Dutch trade with the Americas, the activities of the United East India Company burgeoned. End quote. It sounds like the perfect happy ending. The Dutch, having fought for their independence tooth and nail for the past few decades, finally emerged from the peace, with the recognition they deserved, and went on to expand and prosper across the world and at home. If only it was true. In fact, once the war ended, a brief period of optimism gave way to the historical facts of the region. Namely, the only thing that had brought the provinces of the Netherlands together in the first place was marriage, and forced union under Charles V while the only thing that had kept them together in the years after that was the need for unity against the war with Spain. Historically, the Dutch Republic had never cooperated, and its booming commercial success resulting from its cooperation initially did not seem to be enough to make the conflicting factions and growing religious tensions willing to cooperate again. In reality, the country was polarized into two distinct camps. The first, led by alden Barnvelt and made up of Utrecht and Holland, was for peace with Spain and limited religious toleration of Catholics. The other camp was made up of the provinces that benefited from the war, such as Zealand, and Calvinist ministers who opposed all forms of religious toleration towards Catholics within the Dutch Republic. Getting these two camps to coalesce was hard enough, but it became even harder in the years immediately before the truce was signed due to the emergence of a brand new religious matter that gave both sides sufficient ammunition and also created new divisions. Jacob Arminius and Francis Gomarus were two strongly opinionated people living in the Dutch Republic in the early 17th century. Gomarus was a strict no-nonsense Calvinist refugee who argued unflinchingly for predestination in the issue of salvation. Gomarus issued for absolute predestination which held that from the outset, each individual is doomed either to damnation or destined for salvation in heaven, and that nothing one does makes a blind bit of difference. On the other hand, Arminius was a liberal, reformed theologian, who argued for the importance of the individual's freedom in the case of salvation. The dispute among a highly religiously minded public infected all aspects of first the University of Leiden, and then spread to the rest of Holland. Olden Barnveldt, alarmed at the sudden splitting of the population even further along religious lines, attempted to chair committees and debates in order to ease some of the tensions, but the situation continued to get out of control. Arminius died in 1609, but his death spurred a remonstrance from his followers the next year, in which they called for a revision of the Confession of Faith, as well as recognizing Arminius' position on predestination. In response, the Gomarists launched a counter remonstrance, which, aside from just restating their position, also called for a national synod to mediate all issues in dispute, with a further insistence that all ministers who didn't agree with the Gomarist interpretation of the Reformed doctrine should be cast out. In 1613, Hugo Grotius, the chief magistrate of Rotterdam, escalated the situation even further by lambasting the Gomarists and labelling them as enemies of the state to the unity of the Church, and to the freedom of conscience. Dutch domestic problems with regards to the dispute reached a fever pitch when riots broke out in 1616 against the increase of the corn excise duty, adding to the tense atmosphere. And the stadtholder, Mars of Nassau, didn't help matters much when he declared to his intimates that, "...it is my belief that this feud can be settled only by a strong show of force by either side." When Olden Barnveld openly challenged this opinion of Mars, Mars exchanged strong words with him, and eventually sided publicly with the Gomarists. A pamphlet war now broke out, with the result that both sides became further polarised, and Olden Barnveld then made a critical error in August 1617. Under pressure to act, he approved a measure by the States General which authorised each town to raise special militia units if it judged such a move necessary to preserve law. Of course, this had the immediate result that all provinces suddenly saw the necessity in raising its own militia force, with the effect of giving arms to the dispute, and apparently making civil war in the Dutch Republic inevitable. In summer 1618, Olden-Barnveldt voted to raise more of these militia units, while Morris was now on his back to disband them. In July, Morris laid siege to Utrecht in an attempt to force the militia to lay down its arms there. The following month, the towns in Holland submitted to, and Morris authorized the arrest of Alden Barnvelt, Hugo Grotius, who had badmouthed the Gomarists before, and the remainder of their supporters. In November 1618, the national synod the Gomarists desired was convened, and following six months of deliberation, they condemned the followers of Arminius as heretics and disturbers of the peace in both church and state. Morris then sought to purge every office that contained a follower of Arminius with the result that statesmen with years of experience in their craft were replaced with individuals who knew neither how to act nor what to expect from their new roles, and were mostly there only because they suited Mars's religious policies. By doing this, Mars strengthened the state and the power of the Stadtholder, but he also fundamentally altered the religious and domestic makeup of the Dutch Republic. To the outside world, The appearance of the Dutch stadtholder creating a uniform religious code and enforcing it on the populace made little sense following the Dutch experience of religious persecution, and its rebellion against Spain for at least partly that reason. Additionally, though the central authority of the state emerged from the crisis on a stronger footing than before, the seven provinces were no closer to social or religious unity than Olden-Barnveld had wanted them to be in the years before not to mention the immense religious ferocity of the crisis had distracted from the Dutch determination to take the leading role in international affairs following the truce in 1609. Alden Barnveld, blamed as the scapegoat for the entire event by Mars of Nassau, would pay with his life, and the erstwhile Dutch minister was just one of the many casualties that the burgeoning Dutch Republic did not need. As we saw, the Purge insisted on by the victorious Gomers did more harm than good. And though the seven United Provinces of the Netherlands emerged in one piece, their difficulties had handed the lead in international affairs back to their enemy in the Spanish. It was possible to acquire this lead because France began to spiral dangerously out of control again following Henry IV's assassination on May 14th 1610. The death of Henry at such a time was especially unfortunate for France. Since it was just beginning to reacquire its position in Europe after decades of strife. Mary de Medici, Queen Regent of France in the name of Louis XIII, now took the reins of France, and was met almost immediately with a wave of criticism coinciding with a similarly rough wave of opposition to her goals. Her attempts to move on power and monopolize it for herself are well documented in the historical record and though one could argue that her actions were conducted merely to safeguard Henry's son, Louis, and his succession when he came of age in October 1614, Mary's actions once Henry did come of age goes against this view somewhat. An Italian, coming from the wealthy and influential Medici family, Mary surrounded herself with Italian noblemen and lavished great power upon them. She used the financial surplus of Maximilian de Bethune, Duke of Sully, Henry the Fourth's closest friend and minister, on whom Henry had relied on for the duration of his rule, to play influential French nobles to accept this, but the money could only last so long. When the nobles began to tire of her Italian trio, made up of Concino Concini, the most popular—or should that be infamous—Italian in France, Leonora galagai husband of Concini, and then Marie herself, they withdrew from court and began to raise an army. The grandees demanded that a states-general convene where they could table their concerns and address what they viewed as Mary's reckless politicking, her exclusion from French power circles of all Henry's previous allies and noblemen, and her constant intrigues in court, which led to a stagnated domestic progress that was exacerbated by her lavish spending on her own court and favourites. Geoffrey Parker explains the process Mary went through in the summer of 1614, as the states-general prepared to convene. They therefore agreed to convene a national assembly, but orchestrated an ambitious campaign to exclude her critics. As the selection of deputies took place over the summer, Mary toured the provinces with young Louis XIII. She also allowed the publications of hundreds of pamphlets hostile to the grandees. Although the states-general tabled about a thousand separate grievances, the critics remained so divided that the regent managed to dissolve the assembly without addressing a single one. This proved unwise. The grandees resented their humiliation and soon remobilized. They even started recruiting troops in Germany, both to gain a voice in government and to stop the proposed marriages between Louis the Thirteenth and a Spanish princess and between Prince Philip of Spain and Louis's sister. Although the Habsburg- Bourbon marriages did take place regardless in November sixteen fifteen the government opened negotiations with its opponents the following month and in May 1616 by the Treaty of Loudon made widespread concessions. End quote. "Mary had been thoroughly manipulated and controlled by the Duke of Concini and his wife and she in turn attempted to manipulate and control her son Louis. However, though the Treaty of Loudon had been meant to establish peace, the following year Mary had the Prince of Condé arrested. And the situation began to escalate again. She then declared the grandees guilty of treason when they rose up against her rule again in February sixteen seventeen. This time, her new Secretary of State, Cardinal Ricolot, had drafted the document, but Ricolot was becoming increasingly torn between serving Mary and serving Louis, who had in fact come of age in late sixteen fourteen and was beyond tired of his mother's monopoly on power when he was meant to be king. While the Huguenots mobilized and the Evangelical Union informed Mary that they would support them, the Grandees conducted an alliance with the Huguenots against Mary's court. It was Louis, however, who made the uncharacteristically bold move that ended the deadlock. Geoffrey Parker explains the moment when Louis finally made his move. Quote, the young king proved capable of unexpected moments of decision, starting in April 1617 when, advised by one of his courtiers, Charles Albert of Loynay, Louis sanctioned the murder of Concini as he entered the Louvre Palace. He disposed of Mary's other advisers equally swiftly. When Riccolo arrived at the palace to ascertain what had happened, Louis shouted at him Now at last, I am free of your tyranny. When the bishop tried to respond, the king added, Get out, get out, leave this place. He condemned Riccolo and Marie to exile. Shortly afterwards, his judges obligingly condemned and executed Leonora Galagai as a witch. By contrast, the king pardoned the grandees so that all of them lived to the fight another day. The Huguenots, now isolated, hastened to make their peace." But France's troubles had not ended. Mary, though exiled, retained her lands and titles, and before long she became the new symbol of opposition for those who came to dislike Louis's reign. Then, in early 1619, she managed to escape her exile and return to France. When she arrived, she continued to defy her son, and accused him of allowing Lunay, who was now effectively serving as Concini's replacement, to ruin the kingdom. Riccolò offered to mediate this family quarrel, which had sufficient bite to ruin France's standing even further. But Mary did not heed his counsel, and she raised an army against her son in early 1620, in August of that year, the game finally ended with the defeat of her troops at Anjou. Now, Mary allowed Riccolò to intervene and mediate, with the result that Mary retained her royal position, but that Louis could now finally pull his country out of the doldrums, and hopefully guide it effectively in the face of renewed conflict, now emerging from the Holy Roman Empire. Geoffrey Parker outlines the impact of France's inner struggles on its external foreign policy. Quote, these protracted dramatic wrangles prevented France from pursuing a consistent foreign policy, much to the advantage of the Habsburgs. In sixteen fourteen, Spanish troops seized part of Cleve while Mary struggled to pack the States General. In sixteen seventeen, having encouraged the Duke of Savoy to attack Spain's allies in Italy, France abandoned him. In sixteen eighteen, upon hearing of the defenestration of Prague, Lunay asked if Bohemia could be reached by sea. At last, the French crown was free to address the pressing problems that it faced the power of the Huguenots and the nobles at home, and the growing power of the Habsburgs abroad. The year 1620, in the words of the Russian historian A. D. Lubinskaya, formed a turning point in French political history, for the victory of Louis's troops at home opened both the crucial phase in the development of French absolutism and an era of a more active French intervention abroad. End quote. Spain, while France had actively struggled within, had supported its Habsburg ally and expanded its influence impressively in Europe. Philip III could not only point to the dismantling of the Triple Alliance between France, the Netherlands and England, formed as far back as 1595, but he could also point to his successes in Italy, as Spanish Habsburg power reached its climax there, or in Spain itself, where an unpopular peace with the Dutch was offset by the widespread persecution of the Moriscos. Muslims left over from the Reconquista, who had converted at least nominally to Christianity. The expelling of the Moriscos, though certainly looked on unfavourably nowadays, was greeted back then with great celebration. Although its economic problems remained, and continued to resurface over the length of Philip III's and indeed his son Philip IV's reign, Spain appeared in the years leading up to the Thirty Years' War as a state more powerful than it had been in 1598, when Philip II's death cast the future of its empire in doubt. You may recall I briefly alluded to Spain's preparation of war with Venice during its peace talks with the Dutch. Well, as peace was made with the Dutch, the Spanish focus drifted back to its Italian domains. With the result that, and on the request of the Pope, they soon had their sights set on Venice. Venice, for its part, was the most powerful entity in the Italian peninsula. Its close proximity to the Papal States was both a blessing and a curse as the war of the League of Cambrai had shown a century before. Episode 21, wink wink. In 1606, a new crisis emerged between the papacy and Venice, and the argument over the powers that they were entitled to wield in the Republic. The Pope had insisted that ecclesiastical matters fell under his jurisdiction, while Venetian statesmen continued to push for the complete exclusion of the Pope from Venetian affairs. Venice acted as it saw fit, refusing to exempt papal delegates from the laws or taxes of its state, and upholding the kind of property and construction rights long since practiced by Venice and opposed by the papacy, which saw the clergy hold no special privileges and the papal states insist that they better be given special privileges or else. When it became common knowledge that Spain was no longer tied to its Dutch commitments, Venice would have known it was on borrowed time. The Pope went as far as placing Venice under an interdict and excommunicating the entirety of the Venetian Senate. He then called upon Spain to invade and enforce his authority. Spain never had to move a muscle, mainly because Philip ordered his satellites in the Viceroy of Naples and the Duchy of Fuentes to muster troops and a fleet. Their joint efforts raised a force of 30,000, while Spain made very loud noises that there was more to come. For Venice this was enough. They folded under pressure in April 1607, signing an accord with the Pope. It signified the high point of Spain's influence in Italy. But Spain soon had to turn its attention to Savoy and its ruler, Duke Charles Emmanuel, because in 1609 they expelled Spain's garrisons installed in their lands, and soon after signed an alliance with France. Such an alliance was made null and void by Henry IV's death the year after. But Charles Emmanuel continued to irk Philip III, who also happened to be his brother in law. Charles Emmanuel raised an army in 1613 to dispute Spain's claims to the duchies of Montferrat and Mantua. Once the ruling family of those duchies, and Spain's loyal allies the Gonzagas, died out. Because the duchies bordered Savoy, Charles Emmanuel was strategically interested to begin with. But his daughter had in fact been married to the late ruler of the Duchy of Montferrat, and when Charles invaded that duchy in April 1613, Mantua called on Spain for help for fear that they may be gobbled up by Charles' extended family next. What resulted was a virtually unknown war in the years leading up to the Thirty Years' War, occurring simultaneously to the War of the Ulich Succession, which if you remember, didn't properly end until 1614, and which really began to heat up in that year also. This meant that Spain was as usual pulled in different directions, but Spain's Council of State based in Madrid argued that Italy should take first priority, and so resources were diverted to the region for the express purpose of defeating Charles Emmanuel Savoy. But the war did not go according to plan, and the peace treaty that followed was a shocking symbol of Spain's loss in standing in the region. Even while less than a decade before, they had forced Venetian cooperation with mere sabre-rattling, and seemed in general to possess an unchallenged hegemony over the region of Italy itself. Geoffrey Parker outlines the theatre's events. In Madrid, the Council of State recommended that Italy should take precedence over Northern Europe and diverted its resources to Lombardy. The new commander there, appointed because he happened to be Lerma's cousin, mismanaged the campaign, however, becoming bogged down in sieges. Meanwhile, Savoy mobilised popular opinion by posing as the champion of Italian liberty against the yoke of Habsburg subjugation and sought foreign support. Before it could arrive, in June 1615, French, British, and Venetian diplomats negotiated the Peace of Asti, by which Spain promised to withdraw its forces from Montferrat at once, and promised not to use the Spanish road for six months. promised to defend Savoy if Spain attacked, while Savoy and Mantua agreed to submit the succession dispute to the Holy Roman Emperor, Suzerain of the Duchies. This treaty severely tarnished Spain's standing. An anonymous Spanish pamphlet about the Peace of Asti bore the title The Funeral of Spain's Reputation, and it totally discredited the Duke of Lerma, Philip III's closest statesman." The conflict in Italy hadn't ended yet though. 1615 saw further war erupt as Venice and Savoy, now firm allies, jointly waged war against Habsburg influence in the region. While Savoy invaded Montferrat again, Venice invaded Styria, a key territory in the Adriatic, owned by the brother in law of Philip III, and cousin of Emperor Matthias, Archduke Ferdinand. This war had all the implications and characteristics of becoming a full scale, European wide war, especially when Britain and the Dutch got involved on behalf of the two Italian allies. By the time the smoke had cleared and the papacy had been brought in to mediate on behalf of a grateful Spain, both Britain, the Dutch, the Venetians, and Savoy had inflicted serious blows on Spain's Italian prestige, and their victories there and apparent ability to act with relative impunity in the region cast serious doubts on Spain's claims to the theater. The Peace of Pavia in October 1617 ended war between Savoy and Manfred, while the Peace of Wiener Neustadt in February 1618 ended the conflict between Venice and Ferdinand who by that stage was anxious to focus his attention on more pressing affairs in Germany, particularly now that his cousin Matthias looked to be on the way out. Geoffrey Parker summarises the events, and provides an interesting glimpse into the future. Quote, "...these various agreements, coinciding with Russia's settlements with Poland and Sweden, seem to some observers to presage a new era of peace. Nevertheless, the general political situation remained tense. Two powerful and hostile coalitions now faced each other in Europe. One linked Vienna, Brussels, Madrid and Milan with tacit support from Rome, Munich and Warsaw. The other joined London, The Hague, Turin and Venice with tacit support from Paris, Stockholm, Copenhagen and several German Protestant strongholds. The two alliances linked three sensitive areas, in each of which war could easily erupt. First, the Netherlands, where the truce between Spain and the Dutch would expire in April 1621. Second, the Empire, where confessional leagues in Germany and the Protestant-dominated estates in the Habsburg lands all seemed poised for violence. And the third, the Baltic, where similar religious divisions, reinforced by dynastic differences, pitted Lutheran Sweden against Catholic Poland. Furthermore, and equally dangerous, The rivalry of Bourbon and Habsburg turned all areas of strategic value to both sides, Lorraine, Savoy, the Swiss cantons, the imperial fiefs in northern Italy, into potential trouble spots. Although the English ambassador to Savoy felt optimistic about peace in our time, others feared that, with so many points of tension, and so many international alliances, a major European war could not be long averted. The defenestration of Prague and its aftermath soon proved them right. We'll soon examine the events that led up to the eruption of the Thirty Years' War, after years of simmering religious tensions within the Holy Roman Empire. As you'll soon discover, the Thirty Years' War is quite unlike the First World War. Although many have called the Thirty Years' War the actual First World War, it began in German lands and only expanded when these points of tension exploded and when those interested parties elected to stake their claims to power in the region, almost as though, as we'll see later, the various powers of Europe were taking turns intervening and creating their own period of war in the three-decade-long conflict. Next time, we'll look at the closing days of peace. A state Europe would not know for some time, once a certain violent reaction in a certain polarised city sends events spiralling out of control. First in Germany itself, then all across the known world. See you then. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special of the Thirty Years' War, episode twenty-five point two, Years of Armed Neutrality. Thanks.